All right, everybody. It is Wednesday, March 15th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, as they say on March 15th, beware of the Ides <laughs> of March. And we've got what could be the last blast of winter here in the Northeast. Yeah, there's several hundred thousand power outages right now, especially uh, to those of you listening in New England, where you've been dealing with uh, it being inundated by snow and wind. Uh, some of the totals are already hitting uh, above two feet in New Hampshire and Vermont. Meanwhile, it basically snowed all day on Long Island on Tuesday, and it just is not sticking. It's been very pretty to watch the snowfall, but really no accumulation at all. So an ideal situation, Jill, no shoveling of your driveway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we got the mood without all the work. There you go. All right, now to the headlines. More on the fallout from Silicon Valley Bank's collapse as we get new numbers on inflation that show, nope, you are not crazy. Everything is still insanely expensive. Overseas, a Russian jet collides with a U.S. military drone. We've got the details. Now, as some states and cities debate reparations for Black Americans, San Francisco looks at a plan that could give each person $5 million. A federal judge could decide the fate of medication abortion today in Texas. The government announces some new standards for safe tap water. We're going to have what you can do in the meantime. Some more trouble for the tech industry, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram laying off thousands of workers and Apple also cutting costs. And could this meeting have been an email? Employees are very over meetings and companies are also. Plus, Mosh has on this day in history. As I mentioned above, Jill is the Ides of March, so we will uh, throw it back to Julius Caesar and also a big day in Godfather movie history. Okay, now to our top story. A Russian jet collided with a U.S. military drone over the Black Sea, forcing U.S. forces to bring down the drone early Tuesday morning, according to the Pentagon. It's one of the first direct military confrontations between the two nations' forces since the war in Ukraine started more than a year ago. Before the collision, two Russian jets dumped fuel on and flew in front of the drone in what the U.S. European Command says was reckless, environmentally unsound, and unprofessional. After the collision with the drone's propeller, the U.S. brought down its drone. The U.S. says the drone was conducting routine operations over international airspace in the Black Sea, although they did not release more details on the specific mission that the drone was on. Now, while the U.S. and NATO have been arming Ukraine and providing its efforts with what's called regular overhead intelligence, they have no direct involvement in the war. U.S. officials characterize the encounter as being part of a pattern of dangerous actions by Russian pilots. For its part, the Russian Defense Ministry denied striking the drone and claimed instead that it was observed by Russian pilots in uncontrolled flight before losing altitude and crashing into the sea. Those are two very different stories, Mosh. As we typically expect from the U.S. and Russia these days, Jill, we should note, by the way, as we talk about drones, since some of you may be familiar with civilian drones, this is a U.S. military Reaper drone. This is the size of a jet, 36 feet long, 66 feet across. The Wall Street Journal reports that one of the two Russian jet fighters flew past the drone, dumped fuel on it, and then pulled away. And then when the second Russian jet looked to do the same thing, that's when the Russian jet collided with the U.S. drone. One Pentagon official describing the move as juvenile, but accidental on the part of that second Russian pilot. I'm glad you mentioned that about the size of the drone, Mosh, because I was on the Instagram account and you had posted a picture of what I thought was the jet, but it was actually the drone. 
Yeah, this military drone is huge. It actually can uh, be armed with weaponry, Hellfire missiles. It's been used in Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, and is being used for surveillance right now over the Black Sea. So this is a massive thing and, and near the size of a fighter jet. So we have this dramatic incident over the Black Sea that we're not sure exactly where the U.S. military didn't specify exactly where this took place, though they did say this fits into a pattern here of Russian pilots engaged in very dangerous activity. Russian warplanes right now generally stay out of the air over Ukraine where they can be shot down, but have been regularly flying over the Black Sea, which is south of Ukraine there, north of Turkey. Keep in mind when we're talking about the Black Sea here, it's the size of California. This is a huge, huge area. And the U.S. says there are often what they call non-contact interceptions with Western aircraft and the Russians. This is a rare case where the Russians actually decided to start to mess with the U.S. military drone. I should add, the U.S. and Russia have phone lines set up. They've been around for years, what's called a deconfliction line for air operations to avoid collisions uh, and prevent crises, clearly not used in this case or not used effectively. The U.S. insists that they're not engaged in direct operations against the Russians. But as you mentioned, we continue to provide military aid to the Ukrainians, provide them with guidance of what's happening uh, over their country. But for now, it doesn't look like much is going to change here. A U.S. official says we don't need to do some sort of check-in with the Russians before we fly over international airspace. But we'll keep monitoring this in the coming days. Am I the only one whose brain automatically goes to Top Gun? Notably Top Gun (laughs) Maverick. (laughs) Jill, I was hearing the soundtrack as I started to read this story. Okay, now to what's going on with the economy. I feel like a broken record, but some new data shows that No, you are not crazy. Everything from food to airplane tickets is still really, really expensive. Those numbers show that inflation, aka how much prices are increasing, is still really high, but easing a bit. So in February, consumer prices climbed 0.4% from January and 6% compared to the February prior. So that's lower than the 9.1% year-over-year increase that we saw in June. But 6% is still far above the Fed's 2% annual inflation target. One concern now is that prices are kind of sticking at that uncomfortably high level. So the cost of services has been a really big part of the problem here. For example, package delivery costs about 14.4% more than it did about a year ago. Pet-related services are up about 10.5%. Hotel and motel costs up by more than 7%. Laundry, trash collection, dental services, haircuts, all costing a lot more. Food, housing, and recreation also on the rise. Now, these new numbers are despite the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, which are meant to slow down the economy and in turn slow down inflation. And the Fed's job just got a whole lot more complicated with the banking turmoil. Jill, there are a lot of numbers out there, and right now the Fed's looking at a number of factors. You might hear the terms thrown about inflation, core inflation, super core inflation, and the Fed's looking at all those numbers. They try to take out numbers that are more volatile, looking for good news, but unfortunately right now, you continue to see increases across no matter what type of inflation you're looking at, and this is a factor in the other big business story we've been talking about this week, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Part of the reason that bank collapsed is because of those rising interest rates. Because one of the ways the bank was investing its money was in treasuries, which are typically not that risky. But because interest rates increased over the last year, they have become much less valuable. So they were sold at a loss by the bank, which meant the bank had less money, which meant the bank had less money for the bank run last week. 
And the story for the bank is much more complex, but the interest rates do play a role here. So now that Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, uh, the second and third largest bank failures in modern American history, took place over the course of the past few days, there are a lot of people saying that the Fed should hit the brakes here on rate hikes, at least for a while, especially as just things calm from this weekend. At the same time, you have those who are saying, because of these inflation numbers, the Fed needs to stay the course. This is their big tool that they use interest rates to try to uh, cool down the economy, try to bring down prices, try to ensure there's less money out there for us to spend, which means prices come down because we're spending less money. And so you have these two schools of thought going into next week's big Federal Reserve meeting. Do you keep raising interest rates because of inflation or do you hit pause? One economist saying, when you're driving along a treacherous cliff through the fog, you probably want to drive slowly. But that doesn't mean your destination changes, if you catch my drift. Mosh, it's hard to believe that it was just last week that Fed Chair Jerome Powell was testifying in front of Congress and said that the Fed would have to raise rates perhaps higher and faster than originally thought, in part because the job market and hiring was still really strong. If you remember, we played that clip from Elizabeth Warren and Jerome Powell kind of going back and forth on it. The Fed meets next week, and at least prior to this banking debacle, uh, was expected to raise rates another 025 2.5%. And this is the conundrum. The Fed running out of good options here. They need higher rates to fight inflation, but those higher rates could potentially lead to more problems when it comes to the nation's banks. Now, back to Tuesday's numbers. Our friend of the pod, who doesn't totally know she's a friend of the pod, Heather Long from the Washington Post. <laughs> We're going to have her on at some point. We like her reporting. <laughs> so she says food and rent are the really big pressure points. But the good news is that gas and used cars, the prices for that were down. And the cost for shelter or housing is expected to cool. There are a lot of signs that it is already cooling. It just takes a bit longer for the data to catch up. So your headline, your takeaway, everyone, is... Inflation slowly but surely coming down, but still higher than we'd like it to be. And the federal government is stuck between a rock and a hard place on what to do about it, given uh, that inflation remains high, but the banking situation is sort of messy right now. Staying with the situation, Jill, we're continuing to monitor the headlines and the fallout of the bank collapse. We learned on Tuesday that the Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission, known as the SEC, are each investigating the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. They're separate probes. They're both in preliminary phases right now. They may not lead to charges or any allegations of wrongdoing, but are part of what the government does here after big public companies suffer unexpected losses. They want to investigate whether anything nefarious went down. The investigations are also, among other things, investigating the stock sales that were made by several of Silicon Valley Bank's executives in the days before the bank failed. And we should note that the stock sales so far were all done under what's called 10B51 plans, meaning they were filed 30 days earlier. There's a lot of rules and regulations when you are a C-suite officer at a publicly traded company in terms of how you can trade stocks. So while the optics look really bad right now, they sold just before this announcement, these decisions were made at least 30 days in advance. Interestingly, the SEC actually recently tightened the rules, Jill, that you now need to have a 90-day waiting period before sales can be executed, meaning if you're the CEO of a company, you need to decide on January 1st if you're going to sell something on April 1st. Those new rules went into effect on February 27th. Incidentally, the same day, the 
SVB executives sold under the old 30-day rules. So those are among the things they're looking into, whether they knew anything, whether there's any evidence here of insider trading. I should add, beyond the feds, the regulators in Massachusetts are investigating as well, uh, particularly interested in this, and they have jurisdiction because Silicon Valley Bank had a few branches in the state. Okay, Moshe, a lot more to get to on the podcast. For now, though, let's get to some of our sponsors, starting with Athletic Greens. I have been taking their AG1 supplement in the mornings, the Athletic Greens AG1 powder, just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It is easy, it is quick, and it lets you get on with your day knowing that you have gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of the offer. You could also get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. Okay, let's also talk about Harry's here. Harry's is a brand I've been using for years now for a great shave. My wife actually found their aftershave a couple of years ago, and I've been a loyal customer ever since. I then recently tried their shaving cream as well. And now I am so excited that they are joining us as a partner with a special deal for Mo News listeners. I just got one of their five blade razors as well. It has a nice weighted handle. And what's great is with their Truman Shave trial set, you can get the shaving gel, and the razor. It is a $15 value that for a limited time, you can get for $3 over at harrys.com slash monews. So rare these days to hear that anything is $3. Again, the Truman Shave trial set includes a five blade razor, a nice weighted hand, foaming shave gel, a travel cover. You can schedule replacement blade delivery whenever you need them with refills for as little as $2. I am genuinely a big fan of Harry's and I don't think you'll be disappointed. So I'll tell you how to get it one more time. That $15 Truman Shave trial set right now available for just $3 over at harrys.com slash monews. That's harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com slash monews. Time now for the speed read from NBC News. The Biden administration announced a proposal to reduce harmful chemicals in drinking water. It is the first time that the federal government has suggested setting such a standard for these so-called forever chemicals. The EPA's proposal would limit PFAS, as they're known, by establishing legally enforceable levels for six manufactured chemicals. PFAS are a family of thousands of man-made chemicals that do not break down and are known to contaminate drinking water and pose significant health risks, including cancer, fertility issues, high cholesterol, obesity, and thyroid disease, even at low levels. So the proposal would set maximum contaminant levels permitted in drinking water for several synthetic chemicals that are slow to break down. If this plan is implemented, the regulation would require public water systems across the country to monitor these chemicals, these PFAS, P-F-A-S, if you ever see them written out, and alert the public if the chemicals rise above certain thresholds. Now, keep in mind here, and I've seen recent studies, Jill, that 98% of Americans have PFAS in our system. The concern is when those PFAS get up to a certain level, a dangerous level. Under the current White House proposal, certain PFAS chemicals would be limited to four parts per trillion. 
That's compared to the previous health advisory of 70 parts per trillion. So they're really trying to ratchet up here and limit the amount of chemicals allowed in the water systems. On a state level, some states have already been addressing this. 10 states have enacted enforceable drinking water limits on those chemicals. In the meantime, one thing we wanted to pass along to all of you until these regulations are enacted is there are things you can do in your home to limit the amount of PFAS you're getting from your drinking water. There are effective uh, filters here, what's called reverse osmosis filters, which some of them tend to be a little more expensive in the $200 range, but apparently they can remove a wide range of contaminants, including dissolved solids by forcing water through various filters. There are also what's called granular activated carbon filters. Those are much more common. Those are probably the more common filters you might have, less expensive, not as effective or consistent when dealing with PFAS, you can Google for more information. And I will link to a recent study where you can type in your zip code to find out the PFAS in the water you're drinking. The Washington Post previewing a major court hearing today in Texas. A federal judge in the state will hear arguments in a closely watched dispute that could halt distribution of a key drug used for medication abortion. Depending on his ruling, it could disrupt access nationwide even in states where reproductive rights are protected. The case before U.S. District Judge Matthew Kazmarek was brought by conservative legal organizations on behalf of anti-abortion rights medical associations. It targets the FDA's decades-old approval of the drug Mifepristone, one of two medications used to terminate an early pregnancy, though the drug is also used for miscarriages and other medical issues. The plaintiffs have requested Cosmeric order the FDA to withdraw its approval of Mifepristone, which received the green light back in 2000, on the grounds that it exceeded its authority. But the Biden administration has warned that such a step would harm patients who rely on abortion pills and further strain state health care systems, particularly in places with clinics already grappling with overcrowding as a result of abortion restrictions in neighboring states. If the judge grants the request to block access to the drug nationwide, it could make the pills harder to obtain even in states where medication abortion is legal. And we should note medication abortion is the most common type of abortion in the country used in more than 50% of cases. So once this hearing takes place today, the judge could rule at any time upending access to medication abortions, though a quick appeal would be expected from either party uh, to the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, as it kind of goes up the chain there. After that, of course, is the Supreme Court. The Biden administration here argues that an injunction or the uh, judge blocking access to this drug would then force women who want to terminate a pregnancy for whatever reason to do so through an invasive medical procedure that increases health risks for some patients or is inaccessible by others. There has been additional controversy in recent days leading up to this case, Jill, because the judge had a call with the attorneys on Friday and told them that he was going to schedule this on Wednesday, but to keep it on the DL. He didn't want any publicity, said for safety reasons, he didn't want publicity. So it was actually not officially put on the public docket schedule as would have been normal on Friday. The media got wind of this. And so on Monday, finally, after protests by media outlets who said, we need to know where this hearing is going to be, where it's going to be. The public has a right. It was finally added to the docket. Some background here on the judge. Kaczmarek was nominated by former President Trump in 2019, is known for his conservative views on issues like same-sex marriage and abortion. And his appointment was opposed by all Senate Democrats, as well as Republican Senator Susan Collins from Maine, who supports abortion rights. 
More layoffs coming to the tech industry from Yahoo Finance. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced the company will lay off an additional 10,000 employees and pull 5,000 positions that haven't been filled. It's part of what Zuckerberg is calling the year of efficiency. Some workers won't be told if they'll keep their jobs until the end of the year. Zuckerberg also saying, quote, I think we should prepare ourselves for the possibility that this new economic reality will continue for many years. This is the second round of layoffs for Meta in just the past few months. The company previously cut about 11,000 workers or 13% of its workforce last November. So at its peak last year, Jill, Meta between Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, all of their various divisions had about 87,000 employees. This most recent announcement will mean they will have cut a quarter of their workforce in the course of a year. Meta, which changed its name from Facebook back in 2021, has been dealing with a lot of issue, the declines in digital ad spending, Apple's privacy changes, which means they have less information of ours to sell, and they've been investing really heavily in the metaverse. So all of that, in addition to this pivot they're making, dealing with some challenges here. So if the metaverse doesn't work out, do they change their name back to Facebook or are they stuck with meta? (laughs) I don't think they're ever stuck, Jill. I think what they want to do, though, was not just be stuck on the fact that they Facebook is just one of their products, right? They're the company that owns Instagram, that owns Oculus, that owns WhatsApp. So they wanted kind of an all-encompassing name, sort of what Google did a few years ago when they changed their official corporate name to Alphabet. But you make a good point. If the metaverse doesn't work out, Zuckerberg will be looking for a new name at some point. Most, you mentioned that Apple's privacy changes, one reason that Meta took a bit of a hit when it came to revenue. But speaking of Apple, according to Bloomberg, the company is also trying to streamline operations, delaying bonuses for some corporate divisions, and not replacing some people when they leave. So far, Apple has avoided the kind of mass layoffs that we've seen at a lot of the other tech companies. But Apple is now facing a slowdown when it comes to sales. Revenue down about 5% during the holiday quarter, hurt by iPhone production snags and also sluggish demand for Macs and wearable devices. And as we talked about yesterday, they're working on headsets, which admittedly, I have not heard of anybody wanting one. (laughs) I know we've talked about it, but... Maybe in your circle on Long Island, Jill. Uh, but you know they're going to be really hot. Uh, you know it's it's interesting because Apple, uh, Meta here, a lot of them are betting on elements of augmented reality, virtual reality, the metaverse, etc. Uh, a lot of them are betting on that as our future, and we'll see if consumers roll with that or not. Look, I also didn't want an iPhone. I was adamant that my BlackBerry was going to do it for me. So what do I know? Jill, I'll never question uh, how cutting edge you are when it comes to technology, (laughs) but I will mention to the audience, full disclosure, you do enjoy reruns of Seinfeld and uh, Beverly Hills 90210. Proudly. (laughs) (laughs) Proudly. Okay, from the Associated Press, San Francisco is looking at a controversial draft reparations proposal, which includes a $5 million lump sum payment for each eligible Black resident. If approved, it could make San Francisco the first major U.S. city to fund reparations. The $5 million per person payment is among more than 100 recommendations from San Francisco's African-American Reparations Advisory Committee. Some other ideas, offering grants to buy homes and exempting Black businesses from paying taxes. An estimated 50,000 Black people live in San Francisco. It's not clear, though, how many of them would be eligible for financial reparations. The recommendations lay out a number of possible criteria, like being born in or migrating to San Francisco between 1940 and 1966, 
being displaced from San Francisco by some urban renewal projects, and being a person incarcerated by the war on drugs. So keep in mind here, this is just a proposal, the first hearing being held uh, this week on the proposal. So given the controversy here, given the numbers being thrown around, it will take a while if it ever goes into effect. Keep in mind here, Black residents once made up about 13%, one-three of San Francisco's population, but now account for less than 6% of the city residents. More than a third, though, of the city's homeless population is Black. The Fillmore District is one area that once thrived with Black-owned nightclubs and shops until there was government redevelopment in the 1960s that forced out many of the residents. Several board members have expressed concerns about how they would pay for all of this. The city budget is already facing a shortfall before they would engage in any reparations here. Critics say that the payouts make no sense in a state and city that never enslaved Black people. Generally, reparations opponents say taxpayers who were never slave owners should not have to pay money to people who were never enslaved. On the other hand, reparations advocates say that view ignores a wealth of data and documentation showing how even after slavery officially ended in 1865, that government policies and practices work to imprison Black people at higher rates, deny access to homes and business loans, and restrict where they could work and live. By the way, the state of California also has a task force currently looking into reparations. The Chicago suburb of Evanston became the first U.S. city to fund reparations. So the city gave money to qualifying people for home repairs, property down payments, and interest or late penalties due on property in the city. And in December, the Boston City Council approved of a reparations study task force. Yeah, let's look at the Evanston example for a second as one of the places that's actually implemented this. So the way that they did it in Evanston, Illinois, was to be eligible, adult residents had to have lived in Evanston before 1969. That's when housing discrimination in various forms was at its height. They argue that the system prevented Black families from building up generational wealth. And so Evanston's reparations took the form of $25,000 grants, which could only be used for house repairs, to pay down a mortgage, or as a down payment on a house. Those stipulations meant that the pool of eligible residents was very small, just over 120 applied in the first round. Again, in Evanston, the reparations were 25 grand and could only be used towards housing needs. Jill, as you mentioned, 50,000 people currently live in San Francisco, but it's still unclear, depending on what they decide here, how many of them would be eligible and what they could spend it on. From NBC News, Ohio suing the rail company Norfolk Southern over the derailment of a train carrying toxic materials in the town of East Palestine last month. The 58-count lawsuit alleges several violations of state and federal law pertaining to hazardous waste, water pollution, air pollution, and common law negligence. The state's attorney general saying that the state is seeking damages, civil penalties, and a declaratory judgment that Norfolk Southern is responsible. Ohio claims the accident was avoidable and that the company has seen an 80% increase in accidents over the past decade. The attorney general saying the fallout from this highly preventable accident is going to reverberate through Ohio for many years to come. They noted on Tuesday that since 2015, in just the last seven or so years, at least 20 Norfolk Southern derailments have involved a chemical discharge, and it came as they had their third derailment in just a month. Ohio is seeking repayment of the state's costs, including natural resource damages, emergency response, economic harm to residents. The attorney general is saying that some businesses have lost significant revenues as people continue to avoid the area and will continue to avoid the area. 
The state's complaint, we should say, only asks for the minimum federal damages of 75000 It's a formality, though. The damages will far exceed that minimum, according to the attorney general. And from USA Today, could this meeting have been an email? Employees are over meetings, and now companies are too. According to a new survey, 92% of employees across 76 companies considered meetings costly and unproductive. Employee productivity rose 71% when meetings were reduced by about 40%. And now as layoffs spread and pressure grows to increase efficiency, some companies are experimenting with new ways to combat meeting bloat in their organizations. Shopify, for example, has about 10,000 employees. It deleted 12,000 events from their calendars and focused on creating longer stretches of meeting-free work time. Wednesdays are designated as meetings free and meetings with 50 or more people can only be held on Thursday during a six hour window. And Moshe Shopify exec says no one joined the company to sit in meetings. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Especially those Zoom meetings that like, especially in the early stage of the pandemic, right? It's like, how is everybody doing? How are things going? You know, so many meetings are such a waste and maybe it is time to crack down on these meetings. According to a recent Harvard Business Review story, the length and frequency of meetings have increased enormously over the past 50 years. Executives now spend an average of 23 hours a week in meetings. When you add that up, that's three days out of the five days of work just in meetings. That's up from 10 hours a week in the 1960s, so more than double. And then there's the pandemic. Meeting overload got even worse. Microsoft found that the number of meetings attended by the average Teams user more than doubled from February 2020 to February 2022, while the amount of time spent in those meetings more than tripled. So basically, all we're doing is having meetings all the time. Some companies are trying to crack down on this. Jill, we've been reporting out the four-day workweek experiments happening across the world. And one of the things they've found is the first thing they're able to cut out is meetings. And that's leading to more efficient four-day workweek. They're able to get as much done in four eight-hour days than they used to get done in five eight-hour days because a lot of that time was spent in unnecessary meetings. I think part of the problem, Mosh, is that we all have these virtual calendars or the Google calendars. And so if you're scheduling a meeting, it's really easy to add people who really probably don't need to be at the meeting. I know I used to schedule meetings and I'd kind of feel bad not including everybody. And now that I think about it, I'm sure these people did not ever even want to be included at all. But I was just like, oh, let me put this person. And then felt pressure to come. Yeah, and then (laughs) felt pressure to come. And they were probably like, why am I even on this invitation? I feel like they should have an option where you could put kind of like an asterisk or something where it's like, only attend if you want. (laughs) You don't have to show up. Yeah, it's so hard with office etiquette, you know, to make people to make to create an inclusive environment, but at the same time, you know, not pressure people. But the the meeting glut, clearly Shopify is one of those companies trying to figure it out. And I know there's other companies as well. All right, now time for On This Day in History. And Jill, we're going to kick it real old school, like 2,000 years ago, <laughs> old school, On This Day in History. 2,067 years ago. The year was 44 BC. Roman dictator Julius Caesar was launching a whole bunch of political and social reforms, and they were controversial. And so he was assassinated on this day. You might remember Shakespeare's Caesar, Beware of the Ides of March. Caesar was stabbed 23 times by the group of Roman senators, or so they said, because again, this was more than 2,000 years ago. E2 Brute. That's where that comes from, right, Mosh? Yes. Yes, it does, Jill. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) 
and I you, did. Brutus, and you, Brutus, you defied me. <laughs> I did pay attention in AP Lit, I, I believe it was. That is also where I read Caesar. <laughs> It's, a, it's it's not a it's not a beach read. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, we're gonna fast forward a couple millennia to 1965, about a week after that civil rights march from Selma, Alabama, to Montgomery that descended into violence when police beat up the marchers. President Lyndon Johnson, on this day in 1965, delivered his "We Shall Overcome" speech, in which he introduced voting rights legislation that was then passed later that year. And a bit of consumer history here. On this day in 1990, the Ford Explorer was introduced for the first time 33 years ago. It was one of the vehicles that really reinforced the 90s SUV craze. I feel like it's a craze we're still in, at least in the burbs. Oh, yeah. No gas prices are going to get Americans to ever give up the SUV anytime soon. I mean, are you a suburban mom if you don't have a big black SUV pulling up to nursery school or your elementary school? Or in many parts of the country, a pickup truck. Speaking of Ford, the number one most sold car in the country is still the uh, Ford F-150. All right, a bit of movie history here. Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather premiered 51 years ago today on March 15th, 1972. Jill, I assume you've seen it. I have seen it. And if I hadn't seen it, I probably would have lied and said that I had because it's (laughs) The Godfather. Jill, it's funny you should mention that. There was actually a survey a few years ago asking people if they've ever lied about seeing films to impress (laughs) others. And apparently The Godfather is the number one most lied about film. 30% of people in that poll admitted to having lied about seeing it because they would be too embarrassed to say they haven't seen it. The second movie on that list, Casablanca, and in third place, Taxi Driver. So Godfather, Casablanca, and Taxi Driver, the most lied about films because people are like, oh my God, I totally saw that film. The Godfather clocking in at about three hours, by the way. But totally worth it. And uh, the sequel, also pretty good as well. The Godfather 3 viewed much less highly. All right, from movies to TV, a little bit of TV news history for everyone today. 69 years ago today, CBS made its first attempt at a morning show called The Morning Show. It was hosted by a young man named Walter Cronkite, premiering on this day in 1954. Of course, CBS has had many variations of a morning show through the years, while like NBC has stayed consistent with the Today Show. I actually worked on an iteration of the CBS morning show from 2011 to 2015. No matter what they try, they've never quite figured out how to compete with the Today Show and the later Good Morning America. By the way, Cronkite would only last a couple of years. His co-host, Jill, at the time, a puppet named Charlemagne the Lion. Literally, I'm not making this up. We've got a puppet co-host, and then the Today Show at one point had a chimp as a co-host. And yet, you and I can't get on air there. What's up with that? <laughs> Who needs a morning show when you have a podcast? <laughs> totally. Podcasts are totally the new morning shows. But but it's crazy what they were trying in the 1950s. The Today Show, again, as you mentioned, had a chimp, and CBS had Walter Cronkite. Before he was Walter Cronkite, he was just a guy named Walter Cronkite, and he was talking to a puppet a lion puppet named Charlemagne. All right, staying with TV here for a second, two final on this day's 46 years ago today, Three's Company, if you recognize that theme song, premiered on ABC. And then just a few years later, one of my favorites growing up, Jill, though this dates me as an elder millennial, exennial, whatever we are, Mr. Belvedere premiered 38 years ago tonight 
on ABC as well, March 15th, 1985. There are still reruns of Three's Company playing on TV all the time, actually. Yeah, there's a couple of cable networks that just basically just run a lot of these old 70s and 80s sitcoms. Uh, Mr. Belvedere, I was just thinking about it. If you were to pitch a show, and by the way, this is probably only a niche of our audience that might remember the show, but literally it was about a British butler showing up in Pittsburgh and then becoming the butler to this family. But Joe, there's a lot of these 80s shows that have weird concepts. Remember Small Wonder where you had like Vicky, the weird alien? Uh, Alf? <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> you could get a lot on television in the <laughs> 80s. You're like, I got this. It's a family sitcom. It's a comedy. And they're hosting... Fill in the blank, British butler, <laughs> uh, alien from another world, you know, a girl who looks like a human but happens to be a robot. <laughs> and interestingly, at that point, there was really only network TV. Now there's a million options of where you can watch. Uh, and yet you make a good point. Some of these premises are a little bit odd. There might be a version of Small Wonder or Alf out there, Jill, like streaming on Apple or Netflix. And we're just not aware of it because there's just too much to watch these days. Well, as you know, I'm too busy watching Seinfeld and Beverly Hills 90210 reruns. Mosh. Yeah, you you, you stick to the 90s reruns, <laughs> but there's some classic 80s shows that you could throw it back to if you ever get bored with the 90s. All right. A big thank you to everyone for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. And don't forget to follow us over on Instagram at Mosh at M-O-S-H-E-H. Uh, that's our Mo News Instagram account where we cover the latest and greatest 24-7. Jill, I'll see you back here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.